0: primordial soup pot i am rustin Perre, and i'm here with my co-host hey i'm aaron johnson we're two college friends who like to record this here podcast about uh, evolution natural history and the like there's a twist on this though or every two weeks we pick a general theme and each of us will select a specific topic within that theme but neither of us know the other's topic
1: Yeah, so all the reactions are genuine. Hopefully, we pick something the other person doesn't know about.
0: Our overall theme for this week was
1: Maryland, was it not? Yeah, we just kind of said Maryland. We didn't say what about it. I guess it just has to occur in Maryland.
0: I fit those criteria this week with my topic. Let me just say that initially, it's not going to sound particularly Maryland-like. But just let me finish. There's a tie-in. I think you probably know where I'm going with this once once I announce my topic which Old is Bay. the Megalodon. There's no Old Bay in that. Well, I don't know. It's the most you...
1: Maryland thing I can think of.
0: Yeah. Yeah, it doesn't get much more Maryland than that. But, I mean, this does occur in Maryland. And, I mean, it would have been possible, theoretically, for someone to cook up a piece of Megalodon and season it with Old Bay. Before they went extinct, that is. But there were no people then. I didn't say someone had to be a person,
1: Aaron. Oh, okay. So a fucking velociraptor just walks over,
0: fries it up real good. I don't know. Someone in North America. Well, megalodons are found everywhere. but According to the Discovery Channel, uh, they're real. They're still out there. Have you seen Shark Week? Oh my gosh, Shark Week. Let's not get into the absolute disaster that's become recently.
1: It actually used to be educational at one point.
0: It could have been cool. And now it's not. Now we just have fucking Michael Phelps racing sharks. (laughs) We talked about that. That's still fucking... No, he's not going to beat the shark in a race. It's worth mentioning again because of how dumb it was.
1: If you have to put a propeller on the guy (laughs) to beat a shark, then it's really not fair, is it?
0: Hi, Michael Phelps here. I'm not sure if I can beat this shark, but I think I stand a chance with this here jet ski.
1: Yeah, if a guy's going into the Olympics and he gets to, like, use a dirt bike in the marathon, (laughs) it doesn't really
0: count, does it? Yeah. Yeah, exactly. I'm pretty sure I could win the 100-meter dash at the Olympics if I was allowed to drive a fucking sports car. Yeah, I could win any race if I was in a car and (laughs) no one else was. You're given a mechanical
1: advantage. (laughs) It means you can't compete. Okay, but tell me about the Megalodon.
0: Most people have probably heard of Megalodons. They have a general idea of what they were. But for those of you who don't, megalodons were huge predatory sharks that existed from roughly 20 to 7 million years ago when it is believed they went extinct. A lot of speculation on whether or not they have gone extinct, like on the Discovery Channel, and I will touch on that later because they definitely did go extinct. That is pretty much a fact. But again, I'll talk about that later. They were absolutely enormous, they were believed to be as long as 60 feet. That isn't really known for sure mostly have fossils of Megalodon teeth. We do have fossils of their vertebrae because their skeletons were made of cartilage, which doesn't fossilize very easily. Those fossils are very rare, but they do exist.
1: Yeah, so I will add the fossil record is biased in the sense that something has to be good at fossilizing. So shark teeth are great at that. There's a lot of shark teeth fossils, but shark body, that's cartilage. So that's less chance. Or think of something like a worm you're going to get not nearly as many worms as you're going to get something like a shell or a trilobite, something hard. So not all
0: fossils are created equal. We don't know a whole lot about ancient octopi for a reason. They just, their are soft bodies, they don't fossilize very well. And the same thing is true of most of the megalodon. Like you mentioned, the teeth fossilize very well, and we have lots of those lying around all over the world. But... We are able to proportionally determine how large these sharks were based on their teeth and based on what fossils of the vertebrae we do have. These teeth, by the way, that we find can be as long as six or seven inches, which is really huge when you compare them to modern sharks. Their jaws were also huge. This is going to be a pretty crazy way of looking at this. But they were believed to be as wide as 11 feet across and lined with literally hundreds of teeth. So they could absolutely eat a person whole. Oh, without they could eat two people whole. Two people could, like, lie down head to foot and still not stretch across the entire mouth of the megalodon if they were relatively short people. So, very, very wide mouth. And what's interesting is that in terms of size, they're roughly about the size they are pictured in movies, which is very unusual for Hollywood. I mean, just ask any paleontologist about how much Hollywood movies compare like actually care about depicting extinct animals accurately. And I'm looking directly at the Jurassic park franchise with this con with this comment all over the place, the sizes. Oh my God. It's terrible. And none of the dinosaurs have feathers either. No, in the third one, they
1: tried to slap a few feathers on the Raptors and it just looked like a weird Mohawk kind of, Oh, you know what credit given where credit is due. The most recent one did have feathered dinosaurs. Okay. But I'm going to take that credit back because the movie sucked.
0: Yeah. It was yeah. bad. Who cares about that? The rest of the movie's garbage. And that's probably why they don't really care about depicting the dinosaurs accurately. Because as long as the movie's good. And it wasn't. Who cares? It
1: wasn't cares, good at all. It wasn't. But if so it's we big can...
0: dinosaurs, like it's going to sell. Yeah, unfortunately, you're right. However, what I will say about the Megalodon and how it is usually thought of and depicted, aside from its size, It really isn't depicted very accurately based on what we think it looked like. This is true both based around its coloration, which essentially depicts the megalodon in a lot of cases as basically a really huge great white shark, which probably wasn't the case in terms of coloration and also in terms of its actual body layout. It probably had larger fins than modern great whites do. They think that in terms of body proportions, it probably looked most similar to a modern blue shark. It needed these fins to control and support its large size and weight, and the fins on a modern great white shark aren't proportionally as big. Great whites aren't really closely related to the megalodon at all. Megalodon were actually the last species of a now-extinct lineage of sharks. In fact, some scientists think that the ancestors of modern great whites actually competed with megalodon when they coexisted. Those two really aren't related. We just kind of compare the Great White to the Megalodon and depict the Megalodon as a scaled-up Great White shark because they're both really huge sharks. But that's not the case. But do they still have the same general shape to them? I mean, yeah, they were both sharks. There's some big variety with sharks. Even then, not really. Like The the depictions that I've seen have Megalodon with much longer fins, or the depictions uh, that are based on... Current scientific thought I have megalodon with much longer fins and a much more stretched out kind of body plan than a great white. The snout is also differently shaped. So, I mean, if you want to like see what I'm talking about, you can look up a picture of a blue shark, and you kind of get what I'm getting You kind of will see what I'm look what I'm getting at here.
1: Now, I'm saying we can't rule out the possibility because all we have really are
0: t- that it just had a huge head. Well, we do have vertebrate fossils too. Ver- so, we know it had a huge head and a huge back. Okay, maybe a huge back, maybe just in one spot. <laughs> you just you just have like a Quasimodo shark out there? <laughs> yeah,
1: the hunchback megalodon.
0: <laughs> or alternatively, we know they have big teeth, but what if they only had like six teeth? We don't think that's the case. Okay. We're pretty sure that's not the case. Because, as I'll touch on later, we found fossils of other animals with a megalodon scars in their in their skeletons. Oh, that's cool. It is cool. So we can match up the teeth and say, okay, these teeth are megalodon teeth, and the multiple marks will like can show you how far apart the teeth are. And we know proportionally, based on the size of the teeth, how big the mouth was roughly. So we can be like, okay, you can just do the math from there and extrapolate it out and say, oh, this shark had an absolute shitload of teeth.
1: So. Or maybe it's just one tooth, and it kind of oscillates like a saw, and they, they bite on, and they kind of
0: move along and shear it off. It's just like moving around in a circle around his <laughs> yes. jaw. It's just one tooth that's rapidly circulating It's around.
1: like an electric can opener taking a bite. <laughs> <laughs>
0: yeah, instead of opening a can, it's opening up the entire freaking whale that it's trying to eat. <laughs> it's disemboweling some poor <laughs> whale. With a shark of this size, the obvious question is, what the hell did it eat? Because if you have something that big, it needs to eat a lot, probably. And Megalodon is believed to have fed upon a variety of different animals. It was very much a generalist kind of predator. Anything from dolphins to small whales to seals, things of that nature. Like I said, we actually have a pretty good idea of what it ate because of the bite marks that Megalodon left on the skeleton's of other animals that were then fossilized. And like I said, we have a lot of megalodon teeth, so it's relatively easy to match up those bite marks to the teeth that we have. The thing about this type of prey is that it moves really nomadically. Baitfish and plankton aren't always in the same place, and so the animals that eat them aren't always going to be in the same place, and so the megalodon that eat those animals aren't always going to be in the same place. Their teeth are actually very widespread throughout the world, and they've been found on every continent except for Antarctica, which makes a lot of sense. And I'll tell you why in a second. Because who wants to go digging there for him? Like, let's be honest.
1: Who wants to work for that? If I can find the fossil anywhere, why would I go to Antarctica
0: to look for it? Well, you have a point. Yeah, no, but... that's a great point. <laughs> there are some really interesting fossils from Antarctica because there was a time when Antarctica wasn't at the South Pole. That landmass has been in other places around the world so there are some really interesting fossils to be found there but we haven't found any megalodon teeth there and we probably won't and i'll like i said i'll tell you why at this point you're not really seeing the connection to maryland i've talked about how widespread megalodon were and described them but oh no i th- think i got it you probably they loved visiting Ocean City, Maryland. It's like
1: their favorite place.
0: Every year there's
1: like a big family reunion there.
0: Yeah. That's what was, you're going to say. That was it. It was, Ocean City, Maryland was the Megalodon latrine. That's where they would go to do their business. Anyway, but yeah, so this is a Maryland topic. And the reason it's a Maryland topic has to do with the fact that Maryland as we know it now did not exist 20 million years ago um, because average global temperatures were a lot higher at that time sea levels were also a lot higher. And this meant that large swaths of southern Maryland and basically the entire eastern shore of the state were underwater. And this created this rich, shallow sea environment with lots of prey for Megalodon, like dolphins, small whales, seals, sea turtles, all that stuff. So Megalodon would flock to this area to feed on all of this prey. Megalodon then have lots of teeth, which, as I discussed earlier, and they fall out of their mouth relatively easily Because shark teeth are set in the gums instead of directly into the jaw, like our teeth are. And so these teeth are falling out all the time. And they're then being replaced with new teeth. So a lot of times sharks will have multiple rows of teeth in addition to having teeth around their entire jaw. Lots and lots of teeth. So anywhere that Megalodon went, they're going to leave behind teeth, especially if they're feeding.
1: So shark braces is just a poor investment.
0: Yeah, 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 yeah. Don't. Don't give a shark braces. Although that's a really good business potentially for an orthodontist. Yeah, but how dumb do sharks have to be to actually pay for that? I don't
1: know.
0: They can just go <laughs> take a big bite out of a whale and then... The don't, next... don't like then... your smile? Take a couple bites. It'll be <laughs> yeah, new. Exactly. And then just hope that the next row comes in straight. Over time, sea levels fell to where they are now. And this exposed all the sediment that was at the bottom of this shallow inland, this shallow sea. And so the sediment, which had then collected all these teeth that had then fossilized over the course of millions of years, was now elevated to a height of roughly 100 feet above, above where it was then. And this created these cliffs that are now along the side of the Chesapeake Bay in Maryland. And so because of how prevalent megalodon used to be in these areas, these cliffs are loaded with megalodon teeth. And they're a big tourist attraction for people in Maryland, also for people around, you know, the entire East Coast, because you can come to this area and collect all kinds of really cool fossils. And also the cliffs are really pretty, too. Mm-hmm. So, Are these, uh, I'm guessing, Calvert Cliffs are included? Exactly. These are Calvert yep. Cliffs. Yeah. Yeah, we've been there. We have. Yeah. Didn't find any fossils, but it was really pretty. Anyway, of course, as I alluded to earlier, Megalodon definitely did go extinct. Because of its massive size and the fact that people are just deathly afraid of sharks, there has been a pretty much endless amount of speculation about whether Megalodon somehow didn't go extinct or whether there's one somehow lurking at the bottom of a trench somewhere in the ocean. I am here to say that it is my firm belief that there is no living Megalodon on the planet right now. That is my firm stance, and I'm going to tell you why. But first, I want to talk about why we think. It went extinct. Causes of its downfall. So, which aren't really widely agreed upon. And there are a number of different factors which could have contributed to its downfall. The big one being the large global cooling event that occurred about two and a half million years ago. This resulted in the extinction of about a third of all sea mammals that were alive at the time. And this meant that roughly a third of the megalodon's food went kaput. So, this obviously had a major impact on the megalodon being able to feed and its population remaining in balance. These kinds of global temperature changes are really relevant for predators that are at the top of the food chain because the declines near the bottom have a much more pronounced effect near the top because of the loss of energy at each trophic level. As climates are changing and populations of fish and plankton were declining because of these rapid changes, this had a really pronounced effect on the megalodon at the top of the food chain which could have which probably did contribute to its ex- ultimate demise and extinction.
1: It's hard for big things to survive food shortages because you know they have to eat.
0: Yeah, yeah, that's a thing that people don't really realize a lot of the time when they're thinking about a lot of really massive animals is that it's really threatening that you're so large the fact remains that you have to eat a lot of food. You have to have a lot of a really abundant food source to support your body. And so things that are really large, like the megalodon, have to find a lot of food. And so there has to be a really rich environment to support them. And so the other thing about these declining temperatures that was really problematic for the megalodon was that the megalodon was primarily a tropical shark. Its feeding grounds were these shallow seas, uh, like the ones that used to cover Maryland or parts of Maryland. So as sea levels dropped and as temperatures declined, these tropical areas became more or receded more and more and more over time. So eventually, the megalodon just didn't have any habitat left because it kept getting constricted more and more toward the equator. And so it had less and less habitat and eventually was just completely forced out of existence. This is probably a reason why we don't find megalodon fossils in Antarctica, because they were a tropical species and didn't spend much time around the poles. I still like my theory that who wants to go looking for them.
1: If I have a McDonald's that's 15 minutes away and you come to me and say, hey, let's go get McDonald's in Antarctica. I'm going to say, no. No, I don't, I don't want to do that. <laughs> if it's the same McDonald's, I'm just going to the one nearby.
0: Then again, if you're a paleontologist and all the other paleontologists are taking up space and doing digs in areas that you want to you go to. You want some wide open space to conduct your own fossil digs. no place better than Antarctica.
1: Yeah, good luck. Have fun with that one. (laughs) Might as well just
0: go to a war zone. Side note, Aaron does not handle the cold very well.
1: No, I don't. I don't like the cold. I embrace global warming. I currently live in Western Maryland, and my theory is that if I just wait here another 50, 60 years, it'll be beachfront property. I've been burning tires for three years trying to speed up the process.
0: (laughs) You're terrible. (laughs) But yeah, so it's believed that this cooling event altered habitat and also changed Maryland's climate because at the time of the Megalodon's existence, it's thought that Maryland's climate was more similar to that of the Carolinas. When this cooling event happened, Maryland's climate became more like the one that we now know today. Side note. As far as global warming is concerned, pretty much the exact opposite process is occurring where instead of temperatures declining, they're increasing. And so um, a lot of the problems that the megalodon ran into are now occurring closer to the poles where these cold water environments are becoming more and more constricted um, around the poles because waters are heating up, you know, and... The animals that are adapted to live at higher latitudes are having to move further and further north or south. Another aspect of this is that it's also believed that the megalodon could have used these shallow water habitats in tropical areas as breeding habitat. If sea levels fell, they had no place to breed. If you don't have any place to breed, your species is pretty much kaput. Those are pretty much all the factors that are believed to have at least contributed to the megalodon's decline. Pretty solid. Uh, I guess you just sum it up. Everything was going against them. It really was. I will say that they did manage to survive, you know, a solid 13 million years or so, which, in terms of evolutionary history, is nothing to sneeze at at all. You know, nothing lasts forever, and the megalodon had a pretty, sw- a pretty solid run. So they were obviously very formidable and very adaptable predators. They deserve their, uh, they deserve their due. We haven't been around that long. You know, you can't really sneeze at the megalodon right, They, for they that. got us for now, but <laughs> yeah. Yeah, talk to us in a, in a you know in fifteen million years or so. Yeah, then, then we we'll can, see. Then we'll then see who's laughing. Start...
1: Fifteen million years, you come back to this podcast and you say, "Aaron told you so,
0: megalodons." <laughs> yes. Then we can deservedly start talking trash to ancient sharks, and they are definitely ancient and definitely extinct. And they are because there are signs that we would have noticed if megalodons were still around. For one thing, we take pretty extensive radar scans of the ocean. So It'll be hard for the megalodon to hide. We have technologies that can detect submarines in the water. We could probably detect a megalodon too. You know, we're pretty—we've we're, we're, gotten a lot better at finding stuff underwater, and we still haven't found any evidence of a megalodon being around. And we don't
1: really have evidence that a megalodon was like a deep-dwelling species, do we?
0: That too. That's point. That's the next point I'm gonna—I'm gonna make is that. A lot of people are thinking, well, Megalodon could just be hiding in a trench somewhere or at the bottom of the ocean. There's a lot of ocean down there. And there is a lot of ocean down there, which is why there's speculation. However, all that ocean is very cold, and the Megalodon was not a cold water species based on our current knowledge of, this, of Megalodons. So they're very cold, and also there's not a lot to eat down there. So, as I've talked about earlier with Whale Falls, there's not much down there, so... Anytime there is food, it creates a, a huge event like a whale fall, but those aren't enough to support an animal the size of a megalodon.
1: Yeah, you just have a couple very anorexic megalodons just swimming with their mouth open, hoping a whale falls in, if they were down there. Which does
0: back up my theory that maybe they just had really big heads. <laughs> Yeah, the bottom of the Marianas Trench is a giant megalodon mouth, just megalodons like, oh. are just the biological equivalent of a bear trap. They just sort of <laughs> sit there with
1: their mouth open.
0: Yeah, they've adapted a lot, they've yeah. changed a lot. They've become a, They've become a deep water species. They only get like 10 feet long now. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but their mouths are like miles wide. Oh, the, the mouths the are thing. massive.
1: They just keep getting bigger
0: miles wide and only feet deep. It's crazy. They scoot around like a friggin' hockey
1: puck. <laughs> they're like a, they're a Roomba. That's what they were <laughs> That's why the teeth. It it all makes sense. We've come full circle.
0: <laughs> Roomba sharks. Just there like we go. Roombas. <laughs> yes, Megalodons have become Roomba sharks. I love it. Anyway, the other part too is that Megalodons left scars on lots of different animals. They were taking bites out of everything we know this from the fossil records that we found we know this from the teeth marks that we've left that have been left on fossilized whales and dolphins from the time period we don't see animals or large mammals with those kinds of scars they don't have the same kind of huge teeth marks that would be indicative of a megalodon attack so it's pretty safe to assume that there's just like we haven't seen any evidence that megalodons have been out attacking whales and dolphins the way that they did, you know, eight or nine million years ago. There's just no evidence to support their existence. You could pretty definitively say that megalodons are extinct until we find evidence to the contrary.
1: And a lot of things with cryptids is people just assume there's one. There can't just be one. There has to be a bunch to support a population that lives on throughout time. So, it can't just be a single megalodon. There'd probably have to be
0: a couple hundred, I'd say. Something like that to avoid the effects of inbreeding. Because otherwise, all those bad recessive genes that are in your gene pool are going to show up and rear their ugly head. That's going to be problematic if you have a population that small. Yeah, I they swim
1: like around them. like, uh, was it King Tut? and
0: Yeah, I mean, yeah, just look at the Habsburgs. Yikes. Or did you, you know what? they the Kentucky blue people of the shark world. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Or they would be if they were still around. Which If they were still around. So, yeah, that is the Megalodon. And that is the Megalodon's connection to Maryland. And how it created one of the most popular tourist attractions in the state. And we can attest, it's worth it. Go out there. Nice little hike. Yeah, if you get a chance to check it out, the, the Calvert Cliffs are really really pretty a great place to visit a solid day trip and you might just find a megalodon tooth but that is the end of my uh little spiel all right well nice little spiel that does capture the essence of maryland i'd say do so. we know
1: if like maryland's like the capital of megalodon teeth or there's just a lot of them there
0: i wouldn't say it's the capital like i said they are found around the world but Except there is Antarctica. a
1: very who wants a look that's my theory i'm standing by it <laughs>
0: Aaron, if I win the lottery, I'm going to try and go to Antarctica and find a megalodon tooth. And then I'll show up on your doorstep and be like, here, I found this in Antarctica. Yeah, and then you prove prove my point. Then you would prove my point. I'd go to those lengths to prove your point. Make you right. Well, thank you. I appreciate that. Or I'd spend all that time and never find a tooth and be like, see, there weren't any here. (laughs) But either way, it's worth it. Anyway, what you got for me? All right, so I have a sort of proposal today, a
1: proposition for the state of Maryland. Okay. Uh, I'll get to that. Let me start off with a little intro. So when you think of areas that have the most diverse wildlife, what areas come to mind? Uh, Coral reefs, rainforests. You got it. So warm and generally tropical areas. Sure, sure. Yeah. And the United States is a very massive territory with all kinds of diverse ecosystems especially when you count like all the all the little territories it owns Guam, Puerto Rico, etc. But even then I've still I as a kid I was bummed that it seemed like most of the cool wildlife or at least the majority of it was in other countries that were tropical. So that I think sense. like South yeah. America, Southeast Asia, Australia, Generally, they all have the U.S. beat in terms of diversity.
0: This is true.
1: Yeah. There's one group of animals, I'm sure there's another, but there's one in the U.S. that is actually, is the opposite scenario, and that's salamanders. So the majority of all salamander species are actually found in North America, globally all in North America.
0: We're now several episodes into this podcast, and it's only taken you up to now to do an episode about salamanders. I'm impressed that you held out this long. (laughs) Oh, You'll know
1: exactly what I'm talking about when I get to it. But also, I will say for salamanders, this is odd, because when we consider other amphibians, so uh, like frogs, uh, Sicilians, which is a type of legless amphibian, they have the biggest diversity in tropical
0: regions. Wait. Sicilians are Sicilians are legless amphibians. Sicilians. C A E C I L I A N
1: S. How would oh, you pronounce okay.
0: that? I'm glad you spelled it. I was really angry Italian people knocking on my door.
1: How are they gonna knock They're their legless amphibian? <laughs>
0: They're gonna start banging their heads into the doors, I guess. <laughs> Just I
1: flopping their wet head against the door. And they all talk <laughs> like Chris Pratt.
0: Yeah. I'm not looking forward to that. I don't want to get whacked, man beat up by a pool noodle (laughs) or a piece of fettuccine
1: (laughs) but yeah reptiles greatest diversity is pretty much always in tropical regions and same for most amphibians except salamanders and of these the largest number of species are found in the eastern united states hey good for us yeah a lot of them all along the uh, kind of the appalachian mountain range so you get like little pockets where the mountains disrupt the range, a lot of speciation there. Okay, yeah, that makes that makes sense. Yeah, so Colbeg, it's almost like little islands if you think about it. Hey. And there are plenty on the west coast too. Okay. So right. I'm proposing that the state of Maryland should adopt a salamander to be its state amphibian. Because they don't have a state amphibian.
0: Wouldn't they have to pick a specific type of salamander though? They, they do.
1: And I'm proposing the spotted salamander, Ambystoma maculatum. Why? Well, that will be the entire point of this <laughs> podcast. <laughs> Let me state this in case someone doesn't know the difference between a salamander and a lizard. So they have the same rough body shape, you know, four legs sprawled out to the side and a long tail. But they are not closely related. Lizards are reptiles and they have scaly dry skin and they breathe with lungs, and most of them lay eggs that have an outer shell, like a chicken egg, and they're closely related to things like snakes. Salamanders breathe through their skin. They're amphibians. Although some species have lungs, some don't, they all do breathe through their skin, so it has to stay moist, and they all lay their eggs in a gelatinous mass, so it's just like frog eggs, like a little jelly. You take them out of the water, they're going to dry up. Whereas with reptiles, you know, they figured that out. They got a shell. So, Rustin, I don't know if you're familiar with the spotted salamander, but you probably know a closely related species. The axolotl? Yes! Hey! It's the same family, same
0: genus. How about that?
1: Yeah. So, Rustin, you actually used to work with axolotls.
0: I did, yeah. Um, In college, for a couple of years, I had a job as a... They called me the Axotech. Basically, it was, I went in and fed and cleaned axolotl tanks. That is such a cool name. Yeah, the Axotech. Really, it sounds it sounds kind of badass, I'm not going to lie. Sounds like We're, a Ghostbuster,
1: you know, calling the Axotechs.
0: <laughs> Either that or people who just show up reeking of a middle school hallway. They call them the Axotechs. <laughs>
1: They they come in with body spray when they the kids refuse to shower, just hose them down.
0: <laughs> uh, um, but yeah, no, they they were really funny too. They're they're really cool little animals.
1: Actually, that reminds me of a story. Oof, in high school, there's this girl that I liked uh, who did not like me back. Obviously. And she complained hey, about why, why, why
0: obviously, man, <laughs> stop selling yourself short. You're a likable guy.
1: She uh, told me that there is this redneck kid who sat in front of her in a history class. And she said that he smelled really bad. So one day I'm like, all right, I'll take care of this. I had the class right before her. So I took a can of Febreze that I hid in my backpack and I just hosed down his entire seat. I coated it and then left when no one kind of looked. And I passed her in the hallway and I gave her a thumbs up I'm like, it'll be all right. <laughs> and apparently, everyone was just wondering why it smelled so fruity today. <laughs> right, that Maybe clean laundry, whatever the scent was.
0: Did she... Wait, did she actually know what you did? Or did yeah, no, <laughs> I told her
1: afterwards.
0: <laughs> oh, oddly charming stories I've ever heard from you.
1: Oh, thank you.
0: Chivalry ain't dead. That's that's really sweet of you to do, honestly. Just make your day a little bit better. And I
1: mean, if he smelled as bad as she said, I think I made everyone's
0: day a little better. Well they're just they're just catching the byproduct of your heroic deed. Yeah. Your chivalry. Yes. Bleeding off and bleeding over into everyone else. And permeating the lungs. (laughs) And the nostrils. Of all around. And the nostrils. Not that you'd notice, but you know. Can't smell. Yeah.
1: Anyways, so Spotted salamanders are in the ambistomid or the mole salamander family, like I said earlier. And pretty much every species, most of them, Axolotl being the exception, and there's a couple in this family, they spend most of their lives underground. Okay. That's why they're called the mole salamanders. Gotcha. Spotted salamanders are either black or a very dark purple sometimes, and they have several large yellow orange spots. Uh, kind of all over their back. They reach a size of about 6 to 10 inches long. They don't have any teeth or claws, but they do possess a mild poison. They're not lethal to people. They probably just make you poop a lot
0: or taste bad. <laughs> just don't eat it. They just excrete a little bit of laxative.
1: I don't know laxative, but generally, like, if you eat an animal that's poisonous, I mean, usually your body wants to get rid of it. You're going to poop and vomit.
0: So it functions as a laxative.
1: Not a guess one. That's like saying fight milk is a laxative.
0: But it is. Yeah, but it's that not was what the you want to take.
1: No, take some prunes. <laughs> that not all whole... laxatives are created equal.
0: <laughs> sure, but it worked like it worked like a charm for those <laughs> UFC guys. Shitting with the power of the crow, man.
1: Uh, this is in reference to an episode of It's Always Sunny, where two of the characters try to create a energy drink an alcoholic energy drink made from milk and crow's eggs. And it becomes <laughs> yes. really popular because the fighters will drink it and poop out so much that they move into a lower weight class.
0: Yeah, yeah, it's what they do to make weight. They just shed body weight. Think, Anyways. Think, they actually got a couple UFC guys to be on that episode, which is hilarious. It doesn't surprise me. I would. Yeah. Yeah, it was really, it's really funny. Check it out if you haven't already.
1: Anyways, so reason number one, they should be our state amphibian. They just look cool. They're kind of a dark black purple with big yellow spots, which serves as a posamatic coloration, which is a way of warning predators, hey, don't eat me. I don't taste good. It's like a bright warning color. So yeah, most amphibians kind of have a kind of dull brown green, you know, if you're going to camouflage, but these guys, they've got some color. Reason number one, they look cool.
0: Yeah, I I just looked them up and Damn, they are very cool looking. We've got a whole polka dot thing going on. So these guys aren't
1: exclusive to just Maryland. They actually do have a pretty wide range. You can find them from Georgia all the way up to Nova Scotia. So all along the east coast of North America. Okay. But they are definitely found in Maryland. Gotcha,
0: gotcha. I mean, that has to be fair. That hasn't stopped like a bunch of different states from having the cardinal as its state bird.
1: Yeah, I mean, it's gonna be hard. To find an animal that lives exclusively in your state. Because your state probably doesn't follow boundaries of like an ecosystem.
0: See, this is what Jurassic Park scientists can do. They, for each state, they can genetically engineer a specific kind of animal that can be the state animal.
1: That can only live in that state. And the second it leaves, it just dies on the spot.
0: Exactly. It could be cool.
1: Okay, so these guys are called mole salamanders for a reason. Spotted salamanders live underground for most of their life. Feed on a variety of invertebrates, typically worms and other soft-bodied prey, large portion of their diet. Occasionally, they will eat vertebrates like a small frog or even another salamander. When people usually see them is when these guys are breeding. So spotted salamanders, like many amphibians, lay their eggs in bodies of water. And with spotted salamanders, they migrate to that same body of water, and it's usually the same one they hatch from.
0: Do we know how they find it again?
1: Uh, There has been some studies that they have pretty good, like, spatial recognition. Like, they can identify landmarks and navigate that way. But I wonder if there's a, uh, a magnetic field navigation to it also. Like, I know sea turtles have that. They can use magnetic mag fields of the earth to navigate. Uh, I'm not sure with spotted salamanders specifically. And this can be a long walk. So these guys aren't huge, and they really don't move that fast. There is one closely related species, and in that study, they found individuals walked on average about six miles to get to a breeding area. Wow. That okay. doesn't sound
0: like a lot, but these are not oh, big. Yeah, They're pretty small. That's a yeah, long that's way. Yeah, that's a
1: long distance, and they really don't they don't run. They kind of just crawl along. They're not meant to gallop.
0: Yeah, they're they're not really the zoom-in type.
1: So they do this migration usually about once a year in late winter to early spring. It depends on where they are. It will start later in the year further north. And they typically do it on the first rainy night because they love to visit vernal or temporary ponds. See, we spotted salamanders, they tend to prefer ponds that don't have fish because, well, A, the fish is just going to eat the larva, most likely. And B, the larva just kind of suck. They're, they cannot compete against the fish. They do not move quick. So you can find these like little holes. You can go into the woods. You can find a little divot and you think nothing of it. Well, you come back there in the early spring when there's been some rain and it's filled up. And you could see potentially hundreds of spotted salamanders, all laying massive green egg masses. That's
0: really cool. Mm -hmm.
1: And after a couple nights, they all slowly leave. Now, there's actually a spot near my house. This, I'm pretty sure, it looked like it was made from tire tracks. It just gradually got bigger from erosion. It's literally just on the side of a trail. And every spring, it is filled with these salamanders. I'm not saying where that spot is, because I don't want people to disturb it.
0: Just you. You're the only one that's allowed I'm to I'm the only one it. that
1: gets to disturb it.
0: I am the disturber.
1: That's reason number two. They should be the state amphibian because we should protect them in the breeding period. So the spotted salamanders form distinct metapopulations where most of the inv- individuals return to the same pond they were hatched from. If this pond dries up, these salamanders have nowhere to lay their eggs. Or if they lay their eggs and it dries up too quickly, that's it. They all die. They oh. will take a month or two, sometimes much longer before they can move on the land.
0: Damn. Okay.
1: And another thing is if someone releases fish in these ponds, goldfish in particular, they usually eat all the eggs in the larva.
0: Oh, yeah. So,
1: uh, I'm in a couple Facebook groups and I'll see people where they'll walk through the woods and they'll do little checks on these vernal pools. And they'll say like, all right, well, this one goldfish has been introduced, ruined. Salamanders won't be able to live here. Kind of sad. You know, just a couple goldfish and it's complete.
0: This is why you just flush the goldfish down the toilet.
1: Just don't buy a goldfish. Or don't that. give them That's out at be- carnivals. Be- That's better. They get big. They're not a good fish to have. No. If you don't have a pond, don't get a goldfish.
0: Agreed, yeah.
1: Or if you don't, I would say 55-gallon tank.
0: Yeah. Get a zebrafish. Yeah, zebra- Rustin loves those. A, n- a nice little zebra, danio. They're relatively easy to take care of. They don't get very big. You can have a lot of them in a relatively small space. They look pretty. Yeah, they're just just nice to have around. They're just sitting there. I do love fish tanks. They're just sitting there. Just do it right, you know? Yeah.
1: Don't cram them in.
0: Don't be stupid.
1: So, if salamanders were the state amphibian, we could maybe get some more protection for these vernal pools, help maybe maintain areas, create new ones. I don't know if that's possible, but it's certainly worth a try. And we can maintain and establish our local populations of these salamanders hmm. and right. it doesn't just benefit them because as of now spotted salamanders are not endangered in some regions they are extinct just because like i said you have like these pools that go away you know there's development in that forest they're done they, they got nowhere else to go but if we protected these vernal pools it also helps a lot of other amphibians that use these pools as well
0: okay such as
1: Main ones, there are other Ambystoma salamanders. In Maryland, we have the Jefferson salamander. But if you go into other states, there's tiger salamander, marbled salamander. There's a lot in this family of salamanders. And they all more or less lay their eggs the same way. And, of course, other amphibians like wood frogs. A lot of invertebrates will also be found in these pools. So it is a good little ecosystem. And when you throw in a goldfish, it completely ruins everything.
0: Yeah, I'm sure the Sicilians really like those pools too. <laughs>
1: oh no, we actually do have an invasive population of them in Florida now.
0: Oh, okay. They don't do and that's...
1: much though. They're kind of cool, actually. So I'm I'm gonna fight it.
0: And that's just in Miami, though. The rest of them have the rest of them kind of drift up to New York.
1: Yeah,
0: they walk around New Jersey going,
1: "Hey, a gabagoo." <laughs> <laughs> Oh, another thing the state could easily do, put up a sign that just says salamander crossing, because these guys are just demolished by cars. Oh, they don't yeah. move quick. They, they got the reaction time of like a sedated snail. You know, you thought running into a deer was bad. Well, the deer will thats uh, on the deer. It freezes up the salamander. Yeah. Okay. Even if it started booking it, it don't screwed.
0: compare those two at all. Yeah, the deer will just get in front of a car and just freeze and just be stupid. I'm sorry, that's a the stupid thing to do. The salamander could
1: start sprinting as fast as it wanted, and it's still dead.
0: The salamander will probably at least try to get out of the way of the car. Deer will not. The deer's just like, I'm gonna die, and you're gonna have to take your car into the shop, and that's gonna be our trade-off. When, really, the deer could just get the hell out of the way, and... We'd be fine here.
1: Deer crossing signs? Everywhere. Salamander crossing signs? I've yet to see one. If we just find an area, or a specific road that they cross... Even if it's just for a couple days in the spring, just put up a little piece of plywood that says salamanders slow. Just say they're coming out at night. You know, you could potentially save a lot of
0: them. Okay, but here's the thing. I feel like the deer crossing signs are more about the fact that deer will do damage to people's cars. Like, no one's ever taken their car into the shop and had, and talked to the mechanic, and the mechanic's like, Jesus, what the hell happened to your car? And you're just like, salamanders, bro. <laughs> I Fuck the make... shit up
1: oh man, what if you hit a big patch of them and everything's just gooey? You lose traction. Ugh. But I've seen signs for snakes crossing the road, tortoises, stuff like that, and you know, that's not going to damage your car. And I'm not talking okay. python. I'm talking like a smaller snake.
0: That's fair. All right.
1: Yeah, it's for the wildlife, not for your car. Your car's going to be fine if you take out a salamander.
0: Give the salamander some love. I, I hear you, but not too much love. Not that kind of love.
1: Not like that. So, back to breeding. When the eggs hatch out in these pools, the larvae develop over a period of a couple months. They don't look like tadpoles and frogs. They don't have that drastic transition. They more or less resemble the adults, but they have a flattened tail for swimming, and they have large feathery gills along the sides of their head. They look like...
0: Axolotls. Exactly.
1: Yeah, just imagine them scaled down to an inch or so long. That's what they look like. Gotcha. Gotcha. And I do have to bring this up, that there's an interesting phenomenon where some mole salamanders never leave the water and instead mature into adults that are fully aquatic, like the axolotl. And this is known as neoteny, and it can vary by species of the ambistomids. Axolotls, very popular pets, and are fully aquatic. They very rarely transition to go onto land. And on the other end, you'll have some species where only populations are fully aquatic, like the western tiger salamander can have small populations of neotenous adults that never leave the water, and then they can have populations of adults that do in another area. So it can even vary with the species.
0: So you just have certain kinds of salamanders that just never leave their parents' basement.
1: Yeah, they never grow up.
0: (laughs) They never grow up. They're the Peter Pan of salamanders.
1: As of now, there are no neonous populations of spotted salamanders, but who knows there might be one out there. They have a pretty big range, and if other species in their family can do it, I think they could too.
0: Huh. Keep an eye out.
1: Anyway, here's my final reason for spotted salamanders being the state amphibian. It is their importance to research. Another interesting fact about spotted salamanders, and this actually goes for most salamanders, is they have great regenerative abilities.
0: Oh, okay. Yeah, 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 yeah.
1: Yeah, so mole salamanders have been known to regrow things like legs, tails, ocular tissue, parts of the brain and nervous tissue, uh, parts of certain internal organs, I believe pieces of the heart as well. They can just grow that back. That's pretty impressive. So this is why the axolotl is used for a lot of research. Yep.
0: Can confirm?
1: Very popular. And they're great pets. Everyone loves them.
0: They are. They're really cool.
1: But this isn't why I picked these guys, because most salamanders, even ones outside of this family, are capable of this. I picked these because they are photosynthetic. Really? They are the only photosynthetic vertebrate.
0: How does that work?
1: So I mentioned earlier these guys lay large green egg masses. And that green is from a symbiotic algae in the eggs. And these are only found and spotted salamander eggs in the wild.
0: That's really cool.
1: So the algae photosynthesizes and converts the CO2 and the waste, like urine, nitrogenous waste, into oxygen and helps them grow. And this works well because the pools they breed in usually have lower oxygen levels than like a stream or river. Keep in mind, this is like a okay. small pool. It's often kind of shaded and filled with a lot of leaves you're not going to get a lot of vegetation growing in there right so at first people thought the algae was just growing on the eggs which you know eh, does that count as photosynthesis i don't know they're just on the eggs they're not in the salamander so people were like okay it's clear this is just symbiotic the algae chooses to grow here because it gets co2 and waste from the eggs and in exchange it produces oxygen for the eggs yep but you can actually find the algae in the salamander's nervous system as they develop and you can also find genetic material of the algae in developing embryonic cells of the young so it's not just growing on top of it it's growing inside of it as well gotcha okay wow the salamanders actually have genes just the spotted have genes to recognize and prevent the immune system from attacking the algae within its own tissue
0: That's wild. Yeah, that's really cool. And so then I I assume once they're adults and they're living underground, the algae just can't survive on them anymore? Or what happens? We're not
1: fully certain. However, some studies have shown that the algae stays alive or there's at least genetic material of the algae in the reproductive system of the adults. So I believe the oviducts of the females and like the urinary tract of the males so even when they're fully grown and underground, they're not coming up to see the sun, the algae is still in them. And I said earlier, it was thought that this was a, cu- a clear case of symbiosis between the two. Well, some recent studies show this actually one-sided and the algae is more of a captive within the salamander. So they've enslaved the algae? I guess they've enslaved the algae because when the algae is growing on the eggs, that's not bad. But when it's growing inside the salamanders, it doesn't really develop. It's under like a constant state of stress. And it even has to undergo like anaerobic respiration at times, like fermentation. And that's still helping the salamanders grow. And I okay. will say, it's not rare for animals to have a symbiotic relationship with an algae or bacteria that allows them to photosynthesize. Like, all coral does this. Yeah, it's relatively common, actually. It's very common. However vertebrates this is the only one especially for a terrestrial vertebrate like that is pretty yeah. much unheard of and yeah, totally. none yeah. of the other ones in this family of salamanders do it it's just the spotteds.
0: yeah this this is this is definitely why this should be the maryland state amphibian because the because much like these salamanders babies born in maryland can photosynthesize during their first two years of life <laughs>
1: it's a little secret uh our us Marylanders have kept we can all do it
0: yeah it's 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 how we get by the get through the tough times you know we can just produce our own food
1: yeah people just strap their babies on like solar panels (laughs) along their houses if you go like to a big city in a sunny day you'll just see tons of them all on the
0: roofs that's why you'll never find uh sunblock for babies in Maryland Because... Why would you block that? Why would you you do that? Why would you take that off the market? Why would you take that off the market?
1: Ah, yes. But Spotted Salamanders, there's there's still much to be studied about these fascinating animals. Still a lot to learn from them. And I will say one thing. If you do plan on keeping one as a pet, they're not a great pet because they like to spend most of their time underground. Make sure you buy a captive bred one. Do not take an adult from the wild. Because you're taking one adult that could breed and make a lot more. If you have to take one from a wild, take a baby, take a single egg and raise it, but don't just buy a captive bred one. Let's be sustainable about it.
0: Actually, when I worked in the axolotl lab, the professor that I was working for, she kept a couple spotted salamanders in a little Tupperware container on a shelf in her lab, just because it was cool. So every, you know, every month or so I'd go out and buy crickets at a pet shop and feed the salamanders. Yeah. And you know, there's there's a bunch of moss and rocks in there and stuff. it was, it was cool. They're, They're cool. They guys. like
1: to just kind of stay underground, and yeah. they don't like heat. I should have mentioned this why we should yep. protect them. Salamanders don't do well with heat at all. There's some species that are adapted to cooler regions, like they can't go above 65 degrees Fahrenheit. That's why they spend most of their time in moist, cool environments. Gotcha. So, you know, gotcha. climate change ain't going to do well for the salamanders
0: no no definitely not
1: that is my piece that is why the spotted salamander should be the maryland state amphibian we do not have one
0: well i can say you've thoroughly convinced me at least Uh, i hope our audience feels the same way
1: all right and there we go
0: you want to take us out
1: uh no because we have to talk about what we're doing next time
0: oh that's right we do i forgot It is worth noting that we did this Maryland episode at the request of one of our listeners. If you have any ideas for any future themes that we could talk about, give us a shout. Let us know.
1: Let us know. Hit us up on the
0: email, the Twitter, or just leave a review. Yeah. All those would be greatly appreciated. Um, And who knows? We might just decide to to pick your theme and make that a whole episode. You could have a whole episode about, I don't know, whatever the heck you want, maybe.
1: Maybe. And make it a good suggestion. Yeah. If you're going to suggest something, don't do a shitty one.
0: We reserve the right to to eliminate suggestions that aren't good. but I if you will make exercise one, that right. Yes, we will exercise it. But we believe in you guys, and we think that you guys can come up with some good topics for us to discuss.
1: Yeah, didn't you have another suggestion?
0: There was a suggestion of to do brain chemistry, uh, the nervous system.
1: I'll tell you what, if we just made it about brains or neurology in general, I think I could work with that. Broaden it a little bit.
0: Yeah, I think they could be cool. Yeah, yeah let's do it that. could be cool. I agree. That's that's a solid topic. Great choice. All right. Choice.
1: So, uh, next episode will be about brains. If you enjoyed this episode, please give us a follow and review on your podcast app of choice. And if you have a suggestion, you may send it to us at theprimordialsoupot at gmail dot com or souppotpodcast at Twitter.
0: All right. Sounds good. And now, until next time, I'm Rustin Perret. And I'm Aaron Johnson. And We'll see you. Get out of here. Bye.